Thank you, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Swakon. Thank you so much for joining us on a Friday evening. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU School of Law. Shruti has a broad area of interest, which ranges from the economic analysis of comparative legal and political systems and her research interests specifically include law and economics, public choice theory, and constitutional economics. Without any further chatter, let's directly go into the topic for today, which looks at public choice theory. Shruti, all over to you. Thanks so much, Arya, and thank you, Venki. It's a pleasure to be here uh, as one of the members in the marathon of SWACON. And uh, the task that I was given for today was uh, an introduction to public choice uh, and, you know, politics without romance. So that's what I'm starting with. Um, I, I'll just get right to it. I don't think it requires much preamble. Um, ha can you see my uh, screen share? Uh, it's just loading. I'll let you know. When it's yeah, okay. it's on. Okay. Uh, so you can see the slides. Yes, we can. Excellent. Thanks so much. So I want to start with a story. Uh, and I got this story actually from uh, when I was teaching economics. I used to use principles of microeconomics by Tyler Cowen and Alex Tabarrok. And um, this is a story about shipping convicts uh, from England to Australia. So as we know, uh, you know, many people joke that Australia is sort of founded on British convicts. Uh, the reason was there was enormous amount of prison overcrowding in England. And one way to deal with overcrowding was that they were going to put all the convicts on a boat and they were going to go from England to Australia. Now, as you can imagine, this was a very long journey in 1787. And it was long and arduous. The conditions on these ships were quite awful. Uh, about a third of the convicts on the ships uh, died on the way uh, to Australia and the usual uh, cause of uh, fatality was scurvy, typhoid, uh, you know, smallpox and so on. And the ones who didn't die and did manage to reach Australia were very ill. Uh, they were typically starved and malnourished or beaten. So it wasn't an ideal situation. And uh, even though they were criminals who had been convicted and they were, you know, prisoners, there was a call as there should be in any civilized society that uh, this is a really big problem and even prisoners should be treated humanely. We need to do better in terms of transporting uh, these convicts from England to Australia. So now the big question was how to save convicts. And a lot of people came up with different ideas. Some people said we should pass legislation. Some people thought that you know, there, there should be more policing on these ships. So there were different ideas that were put forward. Now, an economist solution to the problem was instead of paying the sea captains for every convict who boards the ship in England, the suggestion was that the sea captain should be paid for every convict who gets off the ship in Australia. Right. And this is actually it seems like a really small thing. It doesn't seem like a major change, but it had this enormous impact. Right. So if you remember, initially, uh, about a third of the convicts died on the ship. Right. So the fatality rate was about 33 percent. And after the economist solution was implemented. Ninety nine percent showed up in Australia, which means the fatality rate went down 
from 33% to 1% or slightly less than 1%, right? And this system was implemented in 1793. And if you think about it, nothing has really changed, right? The sea captains were always merchants. They didn't become more benevolent. They didn't become public spirited, you know, nor did the convicts magically change. The only thing that changed was a rule which changed the incentives, right? The moment you pay sea captains based on how many uh, healthy passengers are delivered, it was in their interest to ensure that the passengers are actually healthy and that they survive, right? Because if they didn't survive, then the sea merchants wouldn't get paid, in which case they wasted the journey. So the economist solution, the magic of it is, it aligns self-interest of the sea captains with the social interest, right? And this is what is uh, involved in designing a good system. Now, why is this important? Uh, and why do I begin the story of politics without romance or public choice with this? Because the core assumption uh, of public choice is that all individuals, including political actors, are self-interested, right? So this is an assumption we transport from economics to other disciplines. In, in this particular instance, in the case of public choice, we transport the economic way of thinking to politics. Right? And economics gives us a, a very simple toolbox. It gives us a certain set of assumptions such that people are rational, self-interested, etc. And then it tells us what kinds of equilibrium or equilibria emerge from these assumptions in certain institutional settings. So what we do in public choice is that we take the assumptions of economics, we apply it to a political setting, and then we try and have a discussion on what could be the possible equilibrium outcome, whether we're talking about an electoral outcome, we're talking about a bureaucratic outcome, uh, you know, we're talking about a rent-seeking outcome, and so on. So this is also known as a theory of government failure, because the moment one assumes that all political actors in government are not just public spirited, but are also self-interested, right? There's a really crucial, important uh, assumption that we're changing. The moment we assume that about actors in politics and actors in government, then we need to be concerned about a whole new set of issues. And they are things like rent-seeking in the political economy. Uh, how do you get certain kinds of rent-seeking outcomes, which is, you know, the institutions that concentrate benefits and dispersed costs? Uh, something known as the transitional gain strap. I'll get to it with an example in just a minute. Uh, the problem that Bruce Yandel described as one of bootleggers and Baptists when strange bedfellows get together and not so great government outcomes uh, follow. Um, and finally, I'll discuss just a glimpse of what you get in the first past the post system in India. So I just want to give you different examples which are rooted in Indian political economy in these various topics, and then we can go from there. Okay. So the first is simply the question of rent seeking. Okay. Uh, for those who understand economics, you must be familiar with this graph. Uh, this is just a standard graph for any monopoly setting, right? Uh, the triangle there, which is typically associated with deadweight loss, this is also known as the Harburger Triangle because he's the economist who pointed out the, the costs of monopoly, which was the deadweight loss. And what Gordon Tullock pointed out was that if a government is in the business of awarding monopoly or privileges, then resources will be spent to get those privileges. And what are the resources spent? It's the brown 
rectangle, which is the profit. So in anticipation of getting the profit, people will spend a lot of money trying to get it, which is also known as monopoly rents. And therefore, this entire process, this political process is known as rent seeking, right? So if you're in the competitive industry, then firms will keep investing. That is, if there are multiple people trying to get the monopoly privilege, then they will keep investing until these net profits, which is the triangle, will be eaten up. Which means now, when the government's in the business of uh, awarding monopoly privileges, the loss to society is not just the Harburger Triangle, which is the deadweight loss, but it is this entire trapezoid, right? Which is the, the brown portion plus the orange portion, which is the true cost of the monopoly. And this is what Gordon Tullock uh, really taught us about how monopolies are not just a problem because of deadweight losses in terms of, you know, all the units which are which should have been bought and sold, but were not bought and sold uh, because the marginal benefit, which is your demand curve was higher than the marginal cost, but also this other aspect, which is invisible to everybody, which is people trying to compete over a period of time to get the monopoly privilege, right? So I wanna discuss the rent seeking element and apply to one particular kind of problem, which is farmer distress in India because of APMC. This is the Agricultural Produce Market Committee. This is there in various states in India. And uh, what the Agricultural Produce Market Committee really does is it creates small territorial monopolies as the only spots where a farmer may sell his or her produce. And there are a few things which are really unique about produce, uh, most important being that it's perishable and India doesn't have very good systems of warehousing and storage and transportation. So if the access to the mandi is denied, even for a short period of time, you can really exploit farmers because uh, you can completely destroy a harvest by cutting off the access to the market, right? So there are some aspects to the APMC. First, uh, typically, of course, it varies a little bit in states, Farmers must sell their produce to that particular market committee, right? That particular Monday through the system. But a larger market for any farmer means that more consumers can compete, right? But ABMC will prevent this. They will prevent consumer competition in trying to get the farmer's harvest because the farmer can only sell in that region, right? And how do you figure out which Monday to sell to or who runs a particular Monday? All Mondays require a license, which the government hands out. So you can imagine that the traders who get the Monday license are the ones who capture all the rents from being um, able to, you know, sort of uh, coordinate all the farmers in one particular geographical area by forcing them to sell it that Monday. Now, the licenses are obviously quite beneficial because you can force farmers to sell at a pretty low cost and you can get the large benefits of selling the same at a higher cost to the final consumer. And all the money ends up going to the middleman instead of to the farmer. So farmers are forced or exploited in this case by selling to a single individual, right? In this case, the money. Uh, the consumers pay more 
than the farmers get. So there is a huge gap between what the consumer pays and what the farmer receives. So the consumer loses in a way that the farmer does not benefit. And who benefits? The people with political patronage who actually manage to get the Mundi license. Now, this is a classic case of rent seeking because now you have an entire spun off political economy in India where politicians and family members of politicians, local political leaders are constantly in the in line uh, to get the Mundi licenses, right? And the Mundi license gives them control over a particular market. Now, why is there rent seeking? Because the Mundi license is really valuable, right? So a lot of resources will be spent to get that license, right? And what is the economist's solution to the problem? The solution is just get rid of APMC, right? A few states did it during COVID. They actually temporarily suspended APMC rules and said that farmers can sell directly to consumers. Farmers can actually sell to multiple markets because they were trying to implement social distancing. But imagine if a farmer can directly sell to the consumer, then everything that the consumer is willing to pay will end up going to the farmer without any resources going to the middleman. So that's one benefit, but that's a distributional outcome. The allocative outcome in terms of the benefit is because now there is no middleman who is benefiting, no resources will be spent to acquire the license to be that monopoly middleman, right? So that's the important part of the solution in terms of getting rid of APMC. Now, uh, we've seen that it's not so easy to get rid of the APMC. And this is because of another concept that Gordon Tullock talked about in a different paper. And this concept is called the transitional gains trap. Okay, now imagine system A, which is the Mundi system where the farmer just sells directly to the um, uh, Mundi or the middleman. And imagine system B where a farmer is allowed to sell to anyone of his choice, right? Directly to the consumer, can sell to a retail outlet, can sell to a Mundi, can sell to all of the above, right? So there are lots of options for the farmer. Now, all of us agree that system two is better because it reduces corruption, it reduces political patronage. We also like the distributional outcome, which is that farmer actually gets better um, a price for the harvest. And it is also better outcome for a lot of consumers who would like to buy directly from the farmer. Right. So there are many consumers who like farm to table. They like to go to a particular kind of farm or organic farming. They like to have an association with the person who produced the food. So there are lots of reasons why system B is set better than system A, aside from just the allocative efficiency of getting rid of the rents uh, that are sought or the resources that are spent in rent seeking. However, it is not so easy to transition from system A to system B, even if we all agree that system B is better. And the reason it is not so easy to transition is that in system A, in moving from system A to system B, there are going to be some winners and losers, right? And the winners in this case are consumers and farmers, and the losers in this case are all the money middlemen who also happen to be politically connected. But because it is harmful to the existing Mundi operators, right? And they have invested some money in acquiring the license, you know, the amount of money they paid for the license was based on an expected future stream of income, which, you know, uh, they would have made from operating the Monday license. Now, all of that is lost. And because there is a fear that that will be lost, they will really fight any change to APMC rules, right? Because they've already invested money. Now, there is a similar transitional gains trap. The classic example is uh, taxi cab cartels, right? We know that 
uh, the taxi medallion is uh, quite costly to acquire uh, because the rents or the income stream associated with it is very high because only people with a taxi medallion can actually fly a taxi in New York City. And so people used to pay a lot of money to get the medallion. Now, if you've paid a lot of money to get the medallion, it's in your interest to fight any institutional change which will make the taxi medallion lose its value. So this can be... Um, sort of applied to various different contexts, whether it's New York City taxi cabs, whether it is APMC Mondays, but the idea is the same. So you want to transition from system A to system B, but there is a trap. And the trap is that the losers in moving from system A to system B will not be compensated and therefore they will fight the transition. Now I want to give you another example of farmer distress in India, uh, which is to do with this kind of rent ceiling. Uh, it's a slightly different idea based on one by Bruce Yandel. So now uh, one of the things we need for farmers is, you know, sort of like Jack and the Beanstalk, right? You have conventional seeds and they, they give you a particular kind of yield and you have genetically modified seeds, which magically using the same resources, the same land, less water, less fertilizer, less pesticide gives you a much higher yield, right? Now, we know that technology can save farmers. We know that farmers want this technology. And yet, we have lots and lots of restrictions on genetically modified seeds in India. And now, you need to look at the political economy of why this is happening, right? So the government's banned the use of technology. Even GMO seeds, which are safe in other places, including some places like Bangladesh, which is right next door, uh, we have an enormous sort of like, like a, a system which imposes enormous restrictions on the use of genetically modified seeds. Now, Bruce Yandel wrote a great paper called The Bootleggers and Baptists. Uh, it's a classic paper in the public choice literature and it was written for the Southern states. So imagine a state like Georgia in the United States and uh, they uh, cannot sell alcohol on Sundays. Right. And the reason they can't sell alcohol on Sundays, or at least the ostensible reason, is that it's the day of the Lord and, you know, one must not uh, consume on that particular day. But that's one part of the story. That's the ostensible reason. There are also some people who directly benefit if alcohol sales are banned on Sundays, which is if I can't go to a bar or grocery store to just pick up alcohol, then I must be getting it from a bootlegger. Right. And the bootlegger can charge a higher price on Sundays and make some money. So Bruce Yandel came up with this amazing theory that there are two groups that benefit from prohibition of alcohol or, you know, the rules that one can't consume on Sundays. Uh, and one group is the Baptists and the other group is the bootleggers. Now, the bootleggers are obviously profiteering from the system and they're not necessarily, you know, known as public spirited or public interested. But the Baptists, are public spirited and public interested. They are not doing this for their own interest. They genuinely believe in the principle. And what ends up happening is there is a, a strange sort of um, alliance or there are strange bedfellows who are fighting for not having alcohol consumption on Sundays. You would normally not put bootleggers and Baptists in the same camp, but they end up being in the same camp because both of them are lobbying for the same thing. And something similar is happening with GMO seeds in India, right? 
Now, the anti-GMO Baptists are typically middle-class people who believe in organic farming and they think that, you know, all seeds should be traditional. They're worried about the externality element or the pollution of one seed uh, type variety going to another. They don't want a standardization of seeds and so on and so forth, right? So these, there's a very uh, loud group and if you look at these people, they're usually not farmers. Uh, they're usually people who live in big cities. They have nothing to do with farming. And uh, they think that using these seeds is a bad idea, right? So this is the bootlegger. Uh, these are the Baptists, right? Now, there are bootleggers. And the bootleggers are manufacturers of pesticides, right? Because we know that genetically modified seeds actually requires farmers to buy less pesticide. It's actually in some sense environmentally safer, but the people who lose the most from bringing in genetically modified seeds in India are pesticide sellers, they're fertilizer sellers. So in this particular instance, the bootlegger Baptist Alliance is actually very, very straightforward. If you know, in India, we have rules for, um, corporate social responsibility and you know firms are supposed to spend about two percent of their profits and they're supposed to give it uh, for a corporately social responsible cause and this is what has led to a direct alliance between the bootleggers and baptists in this case so you have pesticide industries who ostensibly to reduce their guilt and you know appear socially responsible give money to anti-GMO groups saying that we're trying to save farming and we're trying to be socially responsible. But what they are in fact doing is preserving a market for their pesticides, which may actually make the consumers and the ecology and the farmers worse off, right? So this is a battle that's going on. The bootleggers are completely invisible. It is the Baptists who are visible. Most people associate, you know, anti-GMO movement with someone like uh, Vandana Shiva, who is, you know, on all the news channels talking about ecological farming and organic farming. But the people who are behind this is really this photograph, right? I want to move on to the next idea, which is normally in democratic processes or, you know, when we think about government, which is elected by democracy, or we're thinking about majoritarian politics. But very often we also have the tyranny of the minority going on, right? And why exactly or how exactly do you get the tyranny of the minority? Now, think about something like open defecation. This is the global chart for open defecation. This is a few years old. Uh, India now claims to be open defecation free, by the way. We know that you know we still have about 30% households in rural areas which are not exactly open defecation free. They don't use toilets. They still defecate in the open, right? So India is not as red as it used to be, but it's still pretty, pretty orange even today, okay? So now what does India need? Uh, the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan program, which was sort of, you know, uh, the big flagship program by Prime Minister Modi, they said you need toilets, right? There are movies that have been made on this. Uh, there are all sorts of, you know, government campaigns from 2014 to 2019. The, the project was announced that by October 2nd, 2019, which was the 150th birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi, um, you, you know, we're going to make India open defecation free and every household will have a toilet. That was the idea, right? Now, but India doesn't just need toilets. India needs toilets that are connected to a sewage system. And the reason for that is familiar to all of us. No one wants to have a toilet which doesn't immediately uh, have a systematic way by which we treat 
the egg excreta or the the exit option right and the reason for this is deeply mired in india's caste system in india most castes consider it polluting most people consider it polluting to handle human feces in any way there are still lots of people who think it is uh, not a great idea to have toilets in their home which is not directly connected to a sewer system uh, hand pump latrines and things like that which were a big part of the swachh bharat abhiyan you know they they built these toilets in people's homes but the problem of how do you take the waste away was not solved right so there were two consequences of this in india one consequence was it brought back manual scavenging in a big way which actually makes india's caste problem much worse and um, you know i've written about this there are other uh, scholars who've written about how the swachh bharat abhiyan in one sense was really attacking dalits in india because it focused only on toilets and not on sanitation workers or sanitation technology but the but the simpler part of it is we need to create a toilet system which is incentive compatible to people's preferences now no one thinks the caste system is a good way or you know ritual purity is a good way of uh, 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 you know informing one's preferences but we know that it exists in india right so we know that just simply giving people toilets doesn't work but we know this right most people in urban areas like most people who are probably tuned into this particular webinar uh, have the internet so it's a reasonable presumption that you have homes with toilets or some kind of toilet facility in your hostel or dorm room and you just flush the waste away and you don't think about it in a world where you did not have the option of flushing the waste away and you had to handle human feces it's not so pleasant anymore so what can be done we need sewage systems right but india already knows this so if you see this picture this is a picture from harappa indians uh, you know indus valley civilization was the first in the world you know or at least that's what we know to create sewage systems so we had very clear pits and drainage and indians have sort of like you know known for inventing uh, a drainage sewage system so why don't we have this right and the reason we don't have this is we have not empowered our political incentives in a way that it works so if you think about building a new sewage system today now think about a local municipal corporator right what do they have to do they have to dig up the entire town or the village or the neighborhood where the sewage system has to be built right who's going to benefit from this system people in the future right uh in fact the greatest benefit is going to go to unborn children because a better public sanitation system immediately drops infant mortality and problems like that and you know the really big benefit is going to be far in the future when people are going to get less sick and they're going to have you know better productivity uh and you know better life outcomes better income because we solved a public sanitation problem but all the costs are today that is all the the problems of having the entire city dug up the problem of actually putting in a sewage system managing all this human waste while we build the sewage system all that is today and all the benefits are far in the future probably uh, accruing to a very different municipal corporator or a different mla or a different mp right and because costs are in the present and benefits are in the future you're just not likely to get these systems this is not the only problem the other problem is all the benefits are dispersed right everyone benefits from having a better public sanitation system but all the costs 
are concentrated. They're concentrated to the two or three elected officials in that particular constituency and a couple of bureaucrats or rather the public face of digging up everything. We've seen this over and over again with the metro. People hate the additional traffic jams that is caused by you know, uh, everything that is stalled because roads are dug up with the metro. The benefits are in the future, but there's a lot of abuse that happens in the present, right? But the other problem is everyone who will benefit is dispersed. They're not necessarily organized, right? So it's hard to lobby for this. So if you notice, even today, some of the best stormwater drain systems or some of the best sewage systems are in cities that were set up by the British. And even within the cities, like if you look at uh, Mumbai, the colonial part of Mumbai, which is South Bombay, actually has far better stormwater drains and sewage systems than the newer areas in Bombay. And the reason for this is, uh, many argue that it is not, it wasn't built by elected officials, it was built by civil servants, right, during British times. So if we took away or tweaked certain incentives, we would immediately understand that elected officials are probably not the best people to be given responsibility for putting in sewage systems, because what they'll give you instead is toilets, right? Now, why do we get the tyranny of minority in majoritarian democratic politics? That's the other question. And this question has a lot to do with what kind of electoral system you have. So I'm going to talk a little bit about India's electoral system. This is moving away from the choice between a bureaucrat versus a politician to the different kinds of political or electoral outcomes that we get, right? So in India, one of the big problems why we get the tyranny of the minority is the first past the post system. Now, this is not new to most people who live in India. We've all heard the phrase vote bank politics. And what we mean by that is there's a small single identifiable group that is organized and usually votes together that does not represent or will not represent majoritarian interests, but will try and get benefits to that particular group. Now, uh, in India, mostly these groups are divided by uh, linguistic lines or caste lines, right? Sometimes religious lines, but that's how we think about the vote bank politics in India. And the reason we have this kind of vote bank politics in India is we have the first past the post system. So first past the post system is very, very simple. The candidate with the most vote wins votes wins, right? So it's not that you need to get 50% of the vote share or 70% of the vote share in some way to genuinely represent the majority of voters. Uh, you just need to be the first to, you know, first among all the candidates. And if the person uh, with the maximum votes in a particular instance got 26% of the votes, votes or vote share, then that's, that's the person that wins. There is no limit on the number of candidates per constituency. You can imagine why this matters. There are very few uh, uh, electoral constituencies that have this problem at the parliamentary level, but sometimes you can have up to you know, 50, 60 candidates who are um, contesting in a particular constituency. These candidates, the only sort of cost to them of contesting is that they lose their deposit if they don't get a minimum number of votes. So that's the only sort of uh, constraint. Other than that, there is no real constraint, uh, you know, if they just crowd up the arena. Now, most candidates win by a reasonable margin, but we do have constituencies, parliamentary constituencies in India, and you can get this data on the uh, Election Commission website, who win the constituency by getting, say, 12% of the votes, 15% of the votes, right? So another way of thinking about these candidates is 
85% of the voters did not vote for them, right? They voted for someone else. But because they were disorganized, right? Rather unorganized, and they did not get together to uh, decide on an alternate candidate and their votes got spread out because of this first past the post system, the person who got 15% of the votes does end up winning, right? So in the first past the post system, you can actually have a kind of electoral equilibrium where it is beneficial to the candidate to pander to a small, well-organized minority and still alienate a very large majority but manage to get elected, right? So that's really what we have. Now, what is the equilibrium outcome of this? So now, if you look at the first past the post system in 2019, the vote share across India, right? If you understand uh, the vote share is how many votes did BJP get versus Congress get of all the votes that were polled, right? Now, the vote share of the BJP is 31%. The vote share of the Congress is 19%, right? But the Lok Sabha seats of the BJP is 282 and the Lok Sabha seats of the Congress are only 52, right? So a lot of people in a lot of constituencies may have voted for Congress, right? But one important consequence or the equilibrium consequence of the first past the post system is if Congress is systematically getting, uh, you know, the second highest number of votes or the third highest number of votes in a lot of constituencies, then that impact will be magnified in terms of Lok Sabha seats, right? Similarly, if BJP, even though it's getting only 10% more votes than Congress, or, you know, 12% uh, greater vote share than Congress, if they manage to still capture the number one spot in a lot of constituencies, it's gonna have a magnified impact in Lok Sabha. So if you notice, the difference between the vote share of Congress and BJP is only about 12%, right? But the difference in the, number of Lok Sabha seats between Congress and BJP is about 40 plus percent, close to 50%, right? So only 10% of the seats uh, went to Congress and Lok Sabha and a little over 50% of the seats went to BJP. So it's like a 40% difference. So 10% difference in vote share can be magnified into a 40% difference in Lok Sabha seats, right? It's a massive difference. So why am I calling this a tyranny of minority? Now, BJP is clearly not the minority in the sense that they still got the highest number of votes, right? But in each constituency, they are not representing a majority of the voters because that's how the first-past-the-post system works, right? And this is not just true for the BJP. It is also true for any past government in India. So I'm just going to run through a couple of elections with you. So you can think of BJP versus Congress in the 2014 elections, which is also which was also Prime Minister Modi's government. In this case, Congress got you know little 19.5% of the vote share. BJP got 31%, right? And once again, there was a huge difference in. Um, oh, I think I got the number of BJP seats in 2019 wrong. I apologize for the error. So the 282 seats is for 2014. Uh, they got more than that in uh, 2019. Uh, so now the Lok Sabha seats in the 2014 term were 44 for Congress and uh, the BJP seats were 282, right? So again, this 12% difference leads to a big magnified impact. Now go to the UPA government in 2009, right? Where the roles are reversed. We know Dr. Manmohan Singh formed that government through the UPA alliance, right? Now you have BJP getting 18% of the votes, right? you have Congress getting 28% of the votes. So you can see you still have this 10% difference between the vote share of the government versus the 
leaning opposition party. But in this particular instance, the BJP did much better than you know Congress did in recent times because the difference in parliamentary seats is not as big. Right, it's 116 seats, which is about 20% of Lok Sabha, versus 206 seats that went to Congress, right? Which is about 40% of Lok Sabha. So the 10% difference in vote share leads to about a 20% gap in parliamentary seats. You can see in more recent times, it's led to a 40% gap. The same 10, 12% difference in vote share leads to a 40% gap, right? So you can have electoral equilibria which are very different from what the actual votes that are counted say. Now, this is not a question of, you know, lots of people say, oh, only 30% voted for BJP. Actually, only 28% voted for Congress in the term before that. So it's not about BJP versus Congress. It's a, it's a question of first-past-the-post system. In any first-past-the-post system, you can get away with a relatively small vote share, far below 50% of the votes cast, and still have greater than 50% um, of the voting seats or the representative seats in the lower house, right? Why does this happen, right? Now, uh, you all hear this is a, obviously a pun or a take on the convenience versus an inconvenience store. So in a convenience store, you can normally go and you can pick whatever you want, right? So if you look on the, on the, uh, in the picture, which is bundle hand versus bundle lotus, in bundle hand, you have eggs, right? In bundle lotus, you have more vegetables. You don't have that much eggs and dairy. So now let's say there is bundle hand versus bundle lotus and I must pick between the two, right? I don't get to pick individual items. I may want bread and I may want milk and I, you know, I can want both different discrete items within each bundle or I may hate bundle hand because it has bengan, right? The least favorite fruit for most people I know. Or I may love bundle lotus because it's got apples, but I'm not in a position to pick individual things, right? So now apply this to politics. I may have liked certain aspects of Dr. Manmohan Singh's government, but I may have also disliked certain aspects of Manmohan Singh's government. And I, when I went to the polls, I was not in a position to pick and choose. Same thing with, uh, you know, those who were challenging Dr. Singh's government, which is Prime Minister Modi's candidacy and his platform. So one of the reasons why lots of people went along with uh, Prime Minister Modi in 2014 was his uh, accusation of corruption against the uh, incumbent government and his promise to run a clean government, right? So now there are certain aspects on the BJP platform which may not be appealing to me, which may even be unsavory. Uh, in particular, if you ask me personally, I think uh, a lot of the nationalistic jargon or the Hindutva jargon, in particular, the promise to have, you know, something like the Ram Mandir made. So I may find certain aspects of the platform unsavory, but I may also find certain aspects of the platform savory, which is to run a clean government. But there is no choice in picking and choosing. You are picking one bundle versus another bundle. Now, I did not vote for either. In fact, I did not vote in that election or the subsequent election. So, you know, I, I managed to escape this problem. But for a lot of voters who did vote in the BJP government, and we just talked about the vote shares, certain aspects of the platform might have appealed to them, while other aspects of the platform did not appeal to them, but they had no choice. They had to pick the entire platform. This is a very important way by which the political 
uh, sort of process system works very differently from the market process system, right? So even though there is this notion of competition in an um, in a demo in a democracy or any kind of electoral process, there isn't the same kind of competition that you see in the marketplace where I can actually just pick and choose exactly what I want. So the kinds of efficiency outcomes that you get in the marketplace because of this competition, you don't get in government or in the political process, simply because the political process is an inconvenience store, right? You, you're stuck with platforms and bundles. And this is also one of the reasons you get the tyranny of the minority. A lot of people may not go along with the majoritarian platform, but they voted for it for one reason or another. It could be an entitlement. It could be loan subsidies, right? It could be um, something like uh, loan waivers for farmers, or it could be something like building a temple. Uh, it could be something like the CAA NRC, either for or against. Now pick your favorite recent uh, important uh, platform question, and you are forced to vote on that basis and not vote on individual aspects or individual bundles. Uh, I believe that's about 40 minutes. I'll stop now and um, I'm happy to take questions. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll leave this last slide. I wanted to talk about a few reasons why in the Lok Sabha we get a certain kind of, uh, you know, really biased or asymmetric outcomes. And it's because of very, very specific uh, uh, procedural rules in Indian Parliament. But I'm happy to take that in questions. Thank you so much, Shruti. Uh, consider public choice theory does a beautiful job of explaining the incentive structures which exist. And like you pointed out that those who actually benefit from the structure have an incentive to oppose any change. How do we go about it? Is there any way we can actually change or challenge the structure which exists? This is a great question, right? So I actually don't have those slides here. Uh, give me a second. I want to put up a couple of slides to answer exactly this question. Uh, if you can just bear with me for a moment, okay? Sorry, just bear with me for for a moment sure, sure. while yeah. I I get these slides up. I'll keep talking through it. Meanwhile, okay. Uh, one of the really interesting things that happened with the bootleggers and Baptist movement for farmers, right? Uh, I was talking about the GMO problem, right? One really incredible thing that farmers did. I don't know how many of you've been following the news. Uh, is they decided to go on a farmer satyagraha and expose this bootlegger Baptist. Uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, unholy um, alliance between the bootleggers and Baptists. And what the farmers did was they said, you know what, we're going to go ahead with our particular kind of farm satyagraha. We're going to plant the seeds that we want to plant, right? Do whatever you will, right? We don't care. This is what we're going to do. And it was really an incredible outcome that came that came out of it. Because once you plant GMO seeds, right, and the farmers say we're doing the satyagraha, it is very, very hard for any policeman to arrest farmers. Now imagine arresting poor farmers who have huge loans, who are struggling with their loan payments, and all they want to do is use better technology. And imagine opposing them by actually arresting them. It's not a very... Um, what can I say? It's not a very politically wise uh, outcome, right? 
So one really incredible thing that happened was we managed to get this, I think I have these slides up. We managed to get this great, uh, you know, sort of breaking of bootleggers or Baptists or calling the bluff uh, based on this, right? So I'm just going to start the, can you see my slide share now? Just waiting, hasn't loaded it. Okay, I think it Yeah, it's loaded. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Okay, so I want to slide here, right? So this is, you can become the Baptist, right? So that's the idea. You want to break the unholy alliance between the bootlegger and Baptist. One way to do it is to get the higher moral ground, right? So this is what they did. This picture is from about a year ago. And the farmers in Maharashtra and Gujarat, they said, we're going to put in GMO you know, genetically modified seeds. And they're taking pictures, right? They called the Satyagraha. They didn't do it surreptitiously. They actually did it for everybody to see. And now try, you know, uprooting this. So there are two choices that the government has, right? One is they can stop them and arrest them in this moment. Now that is, does not look good for the government to arrest farmers who are only planting seeds peacefully. The other thing that they could do is they say, okay, let them have the Satyagraha six months later when they harvest, I can uproot the harvest or I can sort of, you know, uh, forfeit the harvest. That is also not a very politically sensible outcome. So you can change the cost for the regulator by saying, I'm going to do this. You know, you do what you need to do to enforce the law. Right. So they did this by sowing BT cotton. And then by the time the harvest happened, the harvest was so good that it is very, very difficult for the government to say, oh, we're going to take away this huge benefit that you got from sowing BT cotton, right? So this picture, if you see, this is a news item by uh, on December 30th, 2019. It's not that long ago. Um, so, okay, another one, vaping, right? So if you notice, there are bootleggers and Baptists when it comes to vaping, right? So let's think about the same thing in vaping. So do, do you all, I mean, I assume you all know what vaping is. Vaping is basically uh, the, the benefit of getting the nicotine uh, without smoking traditional cigarettes, right? And they also have these in other flavors. Now, there are many people who ban vaping, right? Ostensible reason is all these middle-class parents sort of, you know, getting together and saying, uh, you know, it's a gateway drug for children and it's a bad idea and you can be laced with all these other drugs which are not approved and, you know, unregulated things can kill people. But who are the bootleggers when it comes to vaping? It's traditional tobacco, right? The biggest lobby against vaping is actually traditional tobacco. In India, who is that lobby? The, one, the biggest tobacco company in India is ITC. But incidentally, the bootleggers are also the government because tobacco is a huge source of uh, revenue for the government. So they want traditional tobacco to exist. And incidentally, uh, the government of India through, you know, LIC and other NBFCs also, I believe, holds about 20% plus stock in ITC, right? So in this case, they're also more directly the bootlegger because they own stock in the largest tobacco company in India, right? Now, the problem is, look at these guys, right? This picture, there are people who are smokers, right? Who want to get off traditional tobacco, who want to vape because it's safer for them. So if you notice all these good middle class people, you know, this is probably somewhere in Gurgaon, they're protesting, but they don't have the same moral high ground as farmers doing Satyagraha. You notice the difference? They're trying to do exactly the same thing. They're trying to expose uh, the, the benefits of vaping to them personally. They're trying to 
communicate with the regulator. But because they don't have the same high moral ground, it's a really big problem, right? And the debts or the costs of smoking versus vaping tend to be a little bit invisible. So when you're trying to, now I don't claim to know everything about like, you know, political campaigns or Satyagraha campaigns, but there is a way to design these issues in a way that you can break the tyranny of the minority. Right. And some people get it right and some people get it wrong or some kinds of movements get it right and some kind of movements get it wrong. I talked to you about the New York City cartel. Right. There's a picture of the New York City cap cartel. A few years ago, I remember when I started teaching principle of economics uh, at SUNY, uh, I used to ask, you know, how much does a taxi cab medallion cost? And this was seven, eight years ago, you know, before Uber became a big thing. And at that time, the going rate for a taxi cab medallion was eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars right? The highest that a taxi cab medallion had ever been sold for was just a little over a million dollars, right? It's an enormous amount of money to pay for a, a taxi cab medallion. Today, it's going for about $50,000, right? And the reason for it is Uber, right? So Uber came in. Now, why do you need a taxi cab medallion? Because that's the only way to pick up someone off the street, right? You can, run, you can run a car service, but the benefit of having a taxi medallion is you get to raise your hand and stop them at the street, the way we pick up an auto rickshaw or a taxi in India, right? That benefit is not given. Now, Uber made it irrelevant. Now the car service can find me. I don't have to call and explain where I am. In India, sometimes I know you still have to call and explain where you are. But you know, mostly they find you. You don't need to stand in the middle of the street looking for a cab anymore. That's what broke the cartel. Now, obviously, there was the transitional gains trap. As you can imagine, in uh, New York, uh, Bill de Blasio tried to bring in restrictions on how many Ubers could be in New York City at any given point. In time, right? So they tried to cap the number of Uber cars so that there would be little less competition for taxi cabs. Right? Because the more Uber cars are easily available, the thicker that market, the more the taxi cab is effective. Now, Uber did something extraordinary. Now, imagine it's the same problem. All the benefits are dispersed because all the Uber users are all over New York City. They're unorganized. They're not coordinated, right? So the benefits are dispersed. The costs are concentrated to the people who own the medallion. It's a classic transitional gains trap problem. But Uber did something very, very clever. Okay, you've all seen the Uber app or I assume most of you are familiar with the Uber interface. This is a picture of the campaign Uber conducted when Bill de Blasio uh, brought in the restriction. So if you notice, uh, you know, always there is a, there's the, you know, Uber regular, Uber pool, Uber X, Uber black, you know, Uber eats, you have all those different buttons. If you notice the first button in both photographs is de Blasio. That's the mayor of New York. So they said, when you look at the de Blasio button, if you notice in the picture on the right hand side, uh, it is a 25 minute wait and you don't see any cabs or any Ubers nearby, right? If you pick the regular Uber, it's 1.5 X surcharge, but the wait is only three minutes, right? And then it's not there in this particular picture. Below this, they had a little button which said, if you disagree with the de Blasio plan, tweet to de Blasio. So you just press that button and it directly tweeted to de Blasio. In a matter of 24 hours, de Blasio's uh, Twitter page crashed <laughs> and uh, they had to roll it back. They had to roll back the cap on Ubers. Now, what was Uber's really creative thing? They reduced the cost of people coordinating, right? 
all the 5 million users of Uber spread across five boroughs of New York City who don't have time to coordinate. Now, we all want Uber, but we don't have the time to coordinate. We don't have the incentive to coordinate. But if you just made me press one button after you indicated to me how much I would lose, right? Three minutes versus 25 minutes, I'm willing to press a button and spend a couple of minutes tweeting. I do that and the problem goes away. So there are creative ways of doing it. I don't know the solution to each and every problem, but it's not always about just changing the rules or going to Supreme Court. There are other ways of trying to break uh, you know, the tyranny of the minority. Sorry for the long-winded uh, answer, but I, I think it's a really great question uh, that was asked because I think this is sort of the root of the rent-seeking political economy problem in India. Thank you so much, Shruti. Like, that properly explains a lot of problems that you normally would have with the incentive structure and all. And thank you for also talking the model argument there because if I recollect the wave ban thing, it got stopped when somebody went to the vaping companies went to the court and had to get about it. The yes. normal people's protest didn't do anything at all to for it. Exactly. Right. So people need to go to court. So sometimes court solves the problem. But again, notice the court is a different kind of tyranny of the minority, right? Instead of trying to get everyone in Lok Sabha organized or everyone in Vidhan Sabha organized, we go straight to the court where it's going to be two or three judges who are going to, you know, cut through the democratic process. And the reason sometimes we like court so much is because they cut through the democratic process. But remember, we also hate court sometimes because they cut through the democratic process. They don't genuinely express the preferences of the people. So going to courts depends on the outcome and depends on actually the incentive set up for the courts. But you're right, that is just as good an outcome as, you know, this kind of farmer satyagraha or people satyagraha or online movements and things like that. Uh, let's weigh in on one audience question here that I want you to weigh in on. Shruti. It says yes. this, so there are examples of capitalism helping Dalits, but on a structural level, does public choice theory have any insights to the caste problem and whether markets in vacuum can solve the caste issue? So, I mean, the caste problem is really enormous, right? So, and I'm not uh, the best person to talk about all elements of the caste problem. But I'll touch upon a couple of examples of, uh, you know, uh, caste issues when uh, that highlight public choice issues, right? So this is just, that's, that's what I'm limiting myself to. Now, uh, one incredible thing that has happened in Indian politics is Dalits are about 17% of, uh, you know, the Indian population, right? Now, there are also OBCs who very often align with Dalits, and then it becomes a, a larger constituency, but Dalits by themselves are 17% of the population. Now, in a normal system where you required that more than 50% of the people need to vote for an individual, it would be very difficult, given the current power structures, for a Dalit candidate to actually win, right? Especially if we don't have certain seats reserved for Dalit candidates. But in this particular instance, the first-past-the-post system helps Dalits, right? So it is actually beneficial in pushing together or pushing forward a movement where there is a hugely historically oppressed or disadvantaged minority, but because the minority has an incentive to get organized, it's got a common identity, they can still actually challenge the power structures, right? So I would actually say the first past the post system is there's also a positive side to it, right? It manages to get people who are historically disadvantaged minorities elected, right? Now, 
whether we like certain candidates or we don't like certain candidates, that's a normative question, right? But if you phrase the question as a positive question, we would like more representation of Dalits in parliament or more representation of Dalits in Vidhan Sabha. Uh, you can actually get it, right? Mayavati was the, was the chief minister, popularly elected, democratically elected chief minister of India's largest state. And Uttar Pradesh is almost the population of Brazil. Right? So this is no small feat. Now, can you imagine 80 years, 100 years ago, someone from the Dalit community becoming the chief minister? Right? It used to be difficult for Dalits to even get elected to a single seat right? or to get elected to a position of power, if not through you know, the democratic politics, any position of power where there was even like one Dalit position that was reserved for them. It used to be impossible. And now you have an entire Bahujan Dalit vote bank right, which is organized, which actually uses the first past the post system to place their agenda on their table. And remember, this is all done peacefully. This is done through the democratic process. They're not doing anything undemocratic or at least, you know, unconstitutional given the Indian system. So I actually think, you know, the first past the post system now, if you think of it from the point of view of Dalit rights, it's a great outcome that we have seen. Right? We've actually seen Dalit leaders get elected. So I would, you know, that's my thumbs up for the first past the post system. Now, let me give you another example where uh, we have had a certain kind of public choice or constitutional incentive structure, which is disadvantaged Dalits. Now, if you remember the original uh, uh, reservation system in the Indian constitution, was for Dalits, SCs and SDs, right? And when I say Dalits, I mean Dalits and Adivasis, you know, combined together. So it was supposed to be for 15% for Dalits, 7.5% uh, for Adivasis. So, you know, put together, it was 22.5% for the Dalit Adivasi community. Now, there's lots of debates on, you know, this was supposed to be a temporary measure and so on. Now, let's just assume this was a permanent measure, but it was only for a historically oppressed and disadvantaged community. Remember, I'm using the word historically oppressed and disadvantaged, not just any minority, not just any disadvantaged group, you know, not women, right? Not anyone who's uh, disadvantaged because of geographical area. It was very, very specific constitutional measure that was only meant for Dalits and Adivasis. Now, the benefit was quite large, right? So there was reservation in educational institutions, reservations in jobs. So the Dalit community actually got a benefit, right? Now, of course, it's not spread across the whole community. There are some members uh, who were more educated, who got more of the benefits. So that's a different debate. But the benefit was supposed to be only for them, right? But if there is such a big benefit that exists and the government can hand out that benefit, then we know from Gordon Tullock's, you know, theory of rent seeking and so on, that a lot of people are going to lobby for that privilege. Right. And then two sets of things happen. So the first thing was what happened after the Mandal report. Right. This is OBCs or other backward castes. Right. These are typically not Dalits. That is, they were not part they were not outside the caste system. They were not untouchables. They were not Adivasis, but they were bottom of the caste system, right? And they still had terrible health outcomes, terrible socioeconomic outcomes. So it's not that this was not a disadvantaged community, but they were not initially recognized as a historically oppressed or disadvantaged community. But the OBCs 
because of the Mandal report, there was this question that was raised that the OBCs are actually not as well represented in the Indian political structure or the job structure or the civil services structure or, you know, educational institutions and so on. So OBC rights became a big issue in the 80s and 90s. And if you notice, they got together as a group, right? And they lobbied to get the benefit, which in this case was 27% reservation. Okay. Now, one of the things that happened was that the judiciary imposed a limit. They said reservations cannot be more than 50%, right? Now, what did that limit do? Any new group that wants the reservation is going to infringe upon the rights of the existing incumbents who get the benefits of the reservation, right? So the only way to politically play this game is to keep increasing the limit, right? And this happened in places like Tamil Nadu, but the Supreme Court sort of put a kibosh on it. They said you're limited to 50%, right? Now there is lobbying for upper castes who are economically disadvantaged, right? So traditionally the Brahmin Vanya community, which the Dalits felt were the oppressors and who were actually the reason for Dalit, you know, oppression or disadvantages, and who usually occupied all the elite positions, they were left out of reservations. But now there's an enormous lobby that, hey, we should not decide this based on historical oppression or caste. We should decide this based on socioeconomic disadvantage. So the 103rd Constitution Amendment now changes what is qualifying, or rather the, the, the requirement to get the benefits of reservation. And it says things like, you know, you own less than X acres in land and you make less than X amount of income annually, or, you know, your family is not that wealthy. So now we have traditionally landowning caste, traditional upper caste who are fighting for the same benefits because the government is in the business of handing out benefits, right? So if we think about it, does this benefit Dalits or does it hurt Dalits? It depends on what time period you look at and how you view the problem of reservations and historical disadvantage, right? Now, I think this is a terrible thing. It's done two things. It's incentivizing more and more people to assert their caste when the original Ambedkarite vision was to annihilate caste, right? So the caste identities are getting stronger because there are benefits associated to the caste identity. I think that's the first issue with this. The second issue is that, frankly, we. As, as a country, we have gone way beyond the original domain of reservations and what the purpose of reservations was, right? It was supposed to lift a historically oppressed community which did not get access to public spaces, which did not get access to a public school, public water source, did not have any voice in policing, did not have any voice in governance, right? We have veered so far from that original theme that today, Upper caste post the 103rd Amendment can, you know, get the same benefits as someone who comes from a poor Dalit family, right? So we've changed the, and what was the incentive of changing it from historically oppressed to socioeconomic? It was because there was a huge pot of gold at the end of it. And the pot of gold is a government job, right? A lot of people, so, you know, Patidars who landowning community, right? Kapu's landowning community, all these historically, traditionally upper caste communities now want government reservations. So this is the way I would use public choice. You know, there is no single way by saying, this is how public choice addresses Dalits. You have to look at individual rules, right? And if you notice, all of these reservations, a lot of these battles were fought in the judiciary, 
right? So there's one element which is fought in parliament, which is the democratic element, right? There is an anti-democratic element that is limits to democracy, which is fought in the judiciary. So this battle, these, these two institutions, how they battle and what equilibrium we get, you know, time will tell. But it is not clear that always, uh, you know, the democratic process will hurt Dalits or always the democratic process will benefit Dalits. It depends on the very specific institutional setting and the very specific institutional group. Thank you. I think even politicians have an incentive to hang around the fruit of reservation in front of both groups because they have a voter base fixed there instead of actually solve, trying to solve, thing to solve the problem. Yeah, and, you know, it goes back to first past the post, right? So if there is a certain, you know, one of the lists, the reason they call scheduled caste and scheduled tribe is uh, they, they are added to the schedule at the back of the Indian constitution, right? So if you're a community added to that schedule, you're part of that. There was a lot of lobbying for different castes to be part of the schedule. Right? Therefore, be included in the scheduled caste. Now, this goes back to the first past the post system. If you're a group which is well organized, right, even if you weren't historically disadvantaged, you can create a vote bank and try and sneak in as one of those castes, right? Which is exactly what we see happening over and over again in democratic politics. Sorry, you, you were saying something before. No, I was just asking you a follow up question to this. Considering the first, first past the post poll system has its issues and problems. What would you say would be a beneficial alternative to this, which does not end up putting the power in the hands of the majorities instead? Well, there are many views on this, right? One view is that uh, this is actually quite a popular view that if you genuinely want, uh, you know, a larger interest to be represented, represented as opposed to a narrow interest based on language or gender or religion or caste or something like that, we need to have a system where even within the first past the post system, you need to get more than 50% of the votes of the total votes polled in that constituency, right? So you can have as many over 50%, right? So in that sense, the, the uh, upper limit is the same as the first past the post system. The floor is now set as 50% plus one vote, right? So that's the big difference. You don't need to say you can only have certain number of people um, contesting. You can have no limit at all, but people will not invest their resources. It's very costly to fight elections. So people will not invest a lot of resources in candidates who are not going to win more than 50%, right? And the way to enforce the rule is to have a second runoff election, which is if there is no candidate who gets 50% of the vote, then you take the top two or the top three candidates, and then you have a second runoff election. Right? That's typically what people think should be done. So let's say uh, that, you know, uh, we had the first past the post system. No one got a majority. Candidate A got 22%. Okay. Candidate B got 18%. Okay. So candidate B got 18% when they were fighting against all candidates. Right. Candidate A got 22% when they were fighting against all candidates. Now, in the second runoff, only candidate A and B will fight against each other. But now it's possible that even though candidate B got lesser votes the first time, they might get more than 50% the second time, right? Because remember, candidate A only got 22% of the votes, right? Which means there was 78% of the people who did not vote for candidate A. And a large chunk of that 78% may mobilize and vote for candidate B. So what happens when you have a second runoff 
right? You don't strictly have the first past the post system. You insist that at least one candidate should get more than 50% of the vote. You don't get the candidate who can more, most easily organize a small minority. You need candidates who appeal to a broader group, right? Now, this has advantages and disadvantages. So I'm just describing the positive process to you. The normative outcomes depend, right? Now, in a normative outcome world, it may be very difficult for women to get elected. Right? It's wholly possible that if you have a strict requirement that more than 50% of the votes polled have to vote for a particular person, you may drastically reduce the number of people who are willing to support women. Or rather, it takes 50, 70 years to get to a point where a majority will support women. Right? You may get the same thing for a Dalit candidate. You may get the same thing for a Muslim candidate. Right? So there are traditional minorities who may just not have a seat at the table at all. Right? So... Uh, there are different ways of handling that problem. If you remember um, what was happening in pre-colonial India, uh, you had separate electorates, right? So you can have separate electorates for women, you can have separate electorates uh, for Muslims, you can have separate electorates for Dalits, for Adivasis. So, you know, separate electorates is just a concept. It depends on who you use it for. In India, it was based on religion, right? Uh, in pre-colonial India, it was based on religion. So that's one way to think about it, right? So you can, so it just depends on what the end goal is, right? So you you have to design, all public choice tells you is you have this set of incentives, you're going to get this set of outcomes through the political process. Now, whether you like that outcome or not, that's, you know, not for public choice economics to inform. Right? So there's, uh, there are going to be some really great socially beneficial outcomes, uh, but you know, majoritarian politics also makes certain power structures persist. So it's not so clear to me that any given system is like sort of the panacea of, you know, what's going on. I would say actually the real benefit is to restrict the domain of government so that all this becomes less and less relevant, right? So that people have more options to choose. Uh, but it's very difficult, right? It's very difficult to limit that domain of government. Thank you so much. Uh, considering the getting women elected and getting Dalits elected point, I just wanted to clarify something. Is gerrymandering as big as an issue in India? Would you consider that having a stake as it has in public choice in USA? Yeah. So gerrymandering is less of an issue in India and there are many reasons for it. Uh, uh, one historical reason for it. Okay. Uh, I have to give you a lot of context for this. So, you know, I might as well start. So in India, we had something called the Delimitation Commission. I don't know how many people are aware of this, but in India, each person's vote does not count for the same, right? And the reason is that we technically have constituencies which are proportional to the population in the constitutional scheme, but we don't actually implement it. And the reason is in the 1970s, uh, India decided that they're going to freeze the constituencies based on the population size of the 1971 census. Okay. The reason for this was manifold. In India, as you know, we don't have a Senate. Each state does not have equal representation. It has proportional representation. So if Uttar Pradesh has 80 Lok Sabha seats, it also has more Rajya Sabha seats than, you know, a small state like Goa. In the United States, whether you're South Dakota, whether you're New York, right, irrespective of the population of the states, both get two senators in the Senate. Now, one of the major problems was in India, we don't have a deep, deeply fiscally federal system, right? All the money goes to a central pool and then it gets redistributed. 
The trouble was the southern states, right? The southern and western states were richer, right? And they also had, therefore, more revenue raising ability, but they also had better outcomes, right? They lowered population very quickly because, you know, as you know, birth rates drop when infant mortality drops, and infant mortality is very, very tightly correlated with GDP per capita. So richer states had better outcomes, poorer states has, had worse outcomes. But one of those outcomes was that poorer states had a faster population growth than richer states. And if you have a faster population growth, that means you get more seats in Lok Sabha and more seats in Rajya Sabha. So the southern and western states sort of protested and said, hey, we implemented the population control program. Actually, they didn't. It's just an outcome of being richer. But they also said that, you know, we implemented the population control program by the union government and we are getting punished for implementing it because now we have a smaller voice in parliament. So the solution they came up with to solve this problem was the delimitation commission, which froze the number of seats in the, based on the 1971 census. And in the 70s, they said, that we will revisit the problem with the 2001 census. Okay. Now, you know, we had 2001 rolled in and then the problem had just gotten worse. As you know, we've had like even greater divergence uh, in the outcomes of different states. And uh, parliament kicked the can down and said, we'll decide in 2026. Right. So now, the reason I'm giving you this huge background is the kind of gerrymandering we have in India is each state has a fixed number of seats. Okay. So Uttar Pradesh is going to have 80 seats. That's it. Right. So that's the number of seats they're going to have. Now within Uttar Pradesh, you can redraw the boundaries. Right. So it's not really based on population that you have gerrymandering anymore. So it's not that, you know, urbanizing areas will have. So if you're within the state, the urban area might get the constituency, but Across India, we don't have gerrymandering based on population, right? Because the delimitation commission controls it. This doesn't mean we won't have it in the future, right? But we just have a different set of rules. Also, we have a different kind of delimitation commission in the United States. In every state, it's different, right? So the gerrymandering committee in every state that redraws the line is completely different. So even within the United States, you don't have a homogenous outcome. Different states draw it in different ways, right? In India, you have a single commission, right? So you would likely have a little bit more consistency because India is just less federal and more centralized than the United States is. So even in, in a world one day, when you do get gerrymandering, right? You do get political push for redrawing boundaries. You're not going to get it so much, as much as the United States in terms of variation, you're going to get a very uniform outcome. And when it's a very uniform outcome, it means a lot of different states have incentive to get together and try and rig the system, right? So sometimes that's successful, sometimes that's not successful. In, in the US, a very small number of people are in charge of controlling it. Right? So this is really not this. So it's not so much about US versus India or, you know, Indian politicians are better than US politicians, nothing like that. They're all equally self-interested. They all want to maximize votes. The only difference is the institutional structure, which determines what is a constituency and how many people are in a constituency. Now, if you think about it, a constituency in Tamil Nadu has about 60% of the voters that a constituency in Uttar Pradesh has. So we already have a certain kind of gerrymandering. Right. In the sense that you're more likely to win in certain constituencies than other constituencies, because each voter's vote does not count the same. 
This is a pretty well kept secret in India. I don't know how many people know this. And states do redraw their constituencies, right? States can and do redraw their constituencies. Of course, it goes through the delimitation commission, which is, you know, in charge of that. So that does happen. But you know that within state lines, there is less of an incentive because, you know, a lot of our voting happens based on linguistic and caste minority. Right. So there is a certain element of gerrymandering, but not as much within each state. Right. But across states, there is going to be a fair amount. Right. So there, it's, it's at different levels. So it's not a yes or no binary. It's that, you know, there's a, there's a low level of gerrymandering taking place in India right now. And there could be a high level of gerrymandering in the future. Thank you so much. Shruti. I know we have extended a lot beyond the time. Thank you so much for that, Venkatesh. Shruti, has one final question that I'd want your thoughts on. Yeah. Uh, in your slide about the inconvenience story, how we have different bundles where we don't have anything. Considering how we are supposed to be electing politicians and not parties, right? How do you think we can go back to actually electing a candidate and ensuring that the candidates sticks to whatever we want them to do instead of having to vote for the bundle itself? Is there any so, system? Any yeah. Way so there can- are two levels of this again. You know, there are things that make the system worse, and there are things that that make the system better. So in India, we have an awful thing called anti-defection law, right? Uh, that makes the bundle problem way worse than it is, right? So, so let me, actually, let me take a step back. So the first level of the bundle problem is I am choosing my representative for my constituency, but I'm also choosing the representative in parliament, right? So if you notice in India, parliamentary elections are becoming more and more like presidential elections in, in the sense that all parties immediately put up a face of who is going to be prime minister and a party or a coalition that doesn't put up a face for who's going to be prime minister is at a disadvantage, right? This wasn't always the case in India. Sometimes it was obvious because Nehru was everything. Sometimes it was not so obvious, such as in the 90s, right? The parliamentary uh, process and which candidate would become PM in which coalition was not so obvious. So you got some, uh, you know, oddballs like uh, VP Singh or, you know, uh, you know, HD Devagara, who were not like the face of the campaign while it was being fought, but they ended up becoming the prime minister. So you have this kind of outcome. So one way of thinking about this is if, you are thinking more and more about what the union government controls. And as a voter, you want Prime Minister Modi's platform versus UPA, you know, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh's platform or Rahul Gandhi or whoever was supposed to be the face of UPA, right? If you think as a national politics issue, you are more likely, right, irrespective of the institutional structure, pick as a bundle right? Not just pick as someone for your own constituency, right? So that's the first level problem. The second level problem is what we have because of the 52nd Amendment. So since 1985, there's something called the Anti-Defection Constitutional Amendment. The 52nd Amendment is also a law. It says that you can't switch from one party to another, right? So that's what we know. There's no more horse trading and there are strict rules on horse trading. But one really terrible thing that the anti-defection law did was that it said you cannot vote against your party whip command, right? So irrespective of who I represent, I might represent someone in one particular constituency and they may have nothing to do with, you know, loan waivers in Uttar Pradesh, right? Or they may have nothing to do with a particular matter in Rajasthan or a port being built in Vishakapatnam, right? They may have nothing, no skin in that game. But if the party whip 
gives a command that you have to vote with a particular issue, they have to vote with that issue, right? And the penalties, you can even get suspended from Lok Sabha. And so it's a very severe penalty. So in India, you have bundling at three levels. Level one, there are two candidates, right? None of them are going to give me an individual thing. They're like a composite, right? They stand for a particular platform. I can't pick individual. Level two, I'm not just voting for my constituency. I'm also voting for the parliamentary outcome. And then level three, which is this anti-defection law, because of which the parliamentary outcome is now completely uniform, right? If you're a BJP MP, all you're going to do is vote with the BJP platform which is whatever the cabinet says it is, right? If you're a Congress MP, all you're going to do is vote for the Congress platform, no matter what. So if you notice, there are lots of things that BJP introduced, which were old Congress uh, platforms, like, you know, something like GST, right? If you remember, the, the Chidambaram ministry is what brought GST to the forefront and what designed it, right? And at that time, BJP was kind of against it, okay? And when... The BJP wanted to push it forward. The opposition party just by, you know, in this particular case, there was a certain, you know, the Congress MP, especially in Rajya Sabha said, you know, we're going to support it. But there are lots of things like land reform where Congress, which would have been on the other side previously, just because it's an opposition now oppose the motion. So, so we don't get Aadhaar is, Aadhaar is the same. So we don't get a system where, well, Aadhaar is also different. It's a money bill. It didn't have to pass Rajya Sabha. You can sneak it in, right? So remember money bills, uh, can bypass the bicameralism check. So Aadhaar has multiple issues with it. Yeah. Uh, so I was just saying that even that was also an idea which UPA would have had exactly. earlier. Exactly, right? UAPA and that, laws, UPA got it themselves. Exactly. So it's something they would have supported. They would have blocked it in Rajya Sabha. So the NDA government passed it as a money bill, right? Just to prevent this. So you have like sort of three levels of this problem of the inconvenience store in India right? One level, which is just, there is no political candidate who's going to perfectly reflect your preferences. Second, your local MP also needs to be your national MP and the union government is getting greater and greater control over people's lives. And third, which is this kind of, you know, constitutional political parliamentary politics, which is now completely drawn along party lines, not because that's how the original constitution intended it, but because of the whip system and the anti-defection law. So actually, I think the anti-defection law needs to go first. And then you're going to get more candidates, even within a party who will vote their conscience and vote the preferences of their constituency. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this. But before we closing, would you tell us some, if there are some opportunities in all of the Mercator Center of George Mason University for young libertarians and students who are interested in classical libertarian philosophy? I would actually say that the Mercator Center has excellent resources, right? Just go to their website. Uh, pretty much everything that they put up in terms of the research papers and then the news articles, everything is completely free and it's completely ungated. So I would say it's a great resource to start looking at things. Another excellent resource, which is a Mercator Center uh, and Marginal Revolution University combined venture is Marginal Revolution University, right? So I can send you the links. Every single MRU video is completely free of cost. So a lot of the things, and this is also written by Alex Tabarrok and Tyler Cowan, who are the authors of Marginal Revolution. They are like, you know, sort of some of the foremost public choice thinkers that we have. They're professors at George Mason University. They're also affiliated with the Mercator Center. So I would say a great place to start for young libertarians, just start looking at what is out there, right? And my sense is there's a huge literature in public choice and classical liberalism that needs to be created for India. And we keep looking to the West for that literature because that's where the literature exists. So 
I think a place to start is to look at that literature and see how you can apply it to local problems, right? So if they talk about bootleggers and Baptists and alcohol, you know, you can think about how you apply it to APMC or some other local problem in your community. So I think that's a good place to start. And, you know, you're always free to write to us. And hopefully when COVID lifts, we can have more engagement, you know, with yep. all the Indian students. Hopefully we'll have you back in India again, speaking live soon. That'll be Thank great. you so much, Ruti. It was a Thanks pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Satanta. Thank you, Venki, and your entire team. Yep. Uh, Shruti, uh, is it all right if you share your Twitter handle with them so that if they oh, have of any course. questions, and all yeah, please. I, I post about uh, various things, including dogs and mm -hmm. public choice and anything that catches my fancy. So, Twitter is a good way to reach me. You can find my email, just Google me, and you can find my Mercatus email. You can also email me. Yep. Uh, so, you know, uh, feel free to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Shruti. Thanks so much.